Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today, a great guest, Frank Rotman from QED Investors. Frank is one of the most prolific thinkers and investors in fintech. His firm, QED, has invested in disruptive companies like Credit Karma and SoFi. And besides being a pioneer in the fintech space, Frank is an incredibly deep thinker and has some very intriguing thoughts on the importance of exploration in your career. Some of the big differences between working for a startup versus an established company and how to determine which is the right path for you. And then we end with a quick discussion on the future of consumer finance. A really fun episode ahead. There's this idea with startups that you just need to get your product to market as quickly as possible and not worry so much about all the bugs and problems. Reid Hoffman says that if you're not embarrassed with your product, then you've launched too late. Like many startup ideologies that you just blindly subscribe to before you've actually lived it, PayClub went full steam ahead with this idea. Just get our MVP to market as quickly as possible. Sure, there was incredible value to the strategy as we spoke with our users and got their feedback and identified problems, but... This was hard, and the app had a lot of issues. That being said, we wouldn't be where we are today if we didn't follow the get-your-product-to-market-fast strategy. In life, though, you rarely get a second chance. Once you've disappointed the customer, I think it's pretty difficult to get them back at the very next bat. It may take a few more times around before the network becomes so strong that you'll get them again. People today have very high expectations from their apps and their banks. They're used to flawless experiences from Facebook, Instagram, Robinhood. So that's what they expect from anything they open on their phone. And that's tough to do for a very early startup. In the case of PayClub, we solve a very big problem for these college students. So even though our app was less than ideal when we started testing it in the market at the end of the last school year, we're seeing now that users are giving us a second chance. The app now is, in, is hands down delightful to use. I hear it from users every single day. And for users that had a less than ideal experience last spring, we're seeing that most of them are giving us a second chance, which is so amazing. But I think also a testament to the fact that there's a real problem here that no one else is solving. If I had to do it over, would I do it differently? No. The app is so great today because we had to overcome all of those hurdles and obstacles that we wouldn't have known about if we weren't in market. So while we're delighting our users now, the path to get there was a little bumpy. And that's part of the journey. I guess the conclusion here is just be careful of blindly accepting generally agreed upon advice. Every company and every opportunity is so specific that you need to tailor that advice to you. And it may not always be applicable. Something we've had to learn along the journey, just like you will. Okay, let's get into the interview with Frank. Frank, welcome to the podcast. 
Well, uh, very nice to be here. Yeah, you're in Virginia, right? That's right. Okay, and you're a fintech guy. I think your your Twitter handle is fintech junkie. You've been in fintech probably before it was even called fintech, right? Uh, yeah. So my background really was uh, being one of the original guard that joined Signet Bank, and Signet Bank eventually became Capital One. And Capital One, twenty plus years ago, was really one of the first fintechs. We just never called it that. Right. So, I mean, it's not like you went to you went to college and said, "Oh, I'm I'm interested in getting into finance." Was it like like how did it how did it work? How did that getting that first job come to be? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So, I went to the University of Virginia, and I was there undergraduate and graduate studying um, systems engineering and applied math and statistics. And really, my background was in um, artificial intelligence and a lot of the analytic disciplines of of engineering. And you can imagine, you know, people asking me, how did you go from engineering and artificial intelligence into finance? And, you know, the reality was I I had a conversation with my thesis advisor. And my thesis advisor uh, gave me some really good guidance when I asked him probably a question that a lot of your listeners are asking, which is, should I go on and get more education? Should I go get a job? If I should get a job, what kind of job should it be? I mean, it was really, um, you know, exploring all of the options with someone who, at the time, I trusted quite a bit, my thesis advisor. And he just looked at me and he smiled, laughed, and said, that's the most insane and stupid question that you can ask. So, um, you know, it was a, a good conversation that we had from there. But he basically said, the only way you're going to know what you want to do is by exploring and the process of actually interviewing for jobs and the process of applying for, you know, let's say a, a graduate degree or a PhD program. He said, you're going to encounter lots of people along the way and you're going to talk to people. And, you know, it's that process that's going to help you discover what you want to do. He said, until you start losing sleep at night about an opportunity where you can just picture yourself doing it, and you say, that's what uh, I want to do going forward. These are the people that I want to be around. You know, those are the problems that I want to solve. He said, up until that point, everything is theoretical. And the theory behind going on for more schooling or the theory behind getting a job doesn't make sense because you can't make a decision on it. Instead, he said, go interview, go get jobs, you know, go talk to people, go get into a PhD program or two. And that process will help you figure out what's right next. And it was probably the best advice that I ever got. Yeah, I uh, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. This is the premise behind internships, behind behind graduate school. Like it kind of just opens up new windows, new opportunities. You can see things that you like, maybe that you don't like. And, you know, I always viewed it as every internship that I had that I didn't. Maybe it was good, maybe it wasn't. But if it wasn't good, then that... Uh, narrowing it down, one thing I didn't like got me one step closer to seeing something that that I could possibly, you know, be perfect for me. Yeah, I mean, the sad truth is that when you're in college, um, all the companies come to you. You have more access to companies than you're ever going to have again in life, and you know the least about what it is you're interested in. So there's this big mismatch, and you've got to figure out how to actually navigate it and find what's right. And a lot of times, you know, the, the students who are applying for jobs, they're intimidated by the process and they don't want to actually ask the questions that they really want to ask because they think it's going to show poorly. 
but in reality, it's it's like a mutual dating exercise. You know, you're trying to figure out whether you're a fit for them and they're a fit for you. And the best advice I can give is that you have to explore it that way. You know, if you have questions, you have to ask them. You know, if you're not sure, you know, you need to figure out how you can become more sure. You need to compare it against other options that you actually have. And I think that discovery process, um, you know, will lead to something that you'll feel very comfortable where you can put your head on your pillow at night and say, this is what's right for me now. Right. And Frank, also in this process, you know, there's kind of uh, a couple of influences. Maybe there's the influence of your family. Uh, Maybe there's the influence of society telling you, you know, these are prestigious jobs. It's great going and getting a job that does X or doing investment banking or management consulting. But then there's also the what's actually right for you. And, you know, maybe it takes longer. Maybe you have to go do that job that society says is the right thing to be doing before you can figure out whether it's it's right or, or wrong for you, but is there anything uh, based on your past that that you were, you were able to kind of uh, discern between what society was telling you to do versus what you actually should be doing? That's a really, really good question and actually a profound issue. Um, I mean, I, I remember when I was you know at UVA and looking at all of the options. Um, my school was paid for by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and I had options to go work for them. Uh, it was very clear in the interview process. I found, you know, opportunities to work on Wall Street with some prestigious firms and some prestigious consulting firms. And when I came back um, from interviews with what was Signet Bank at the time, it was the 50th largest bank in the country. It was regional. It was Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. And when I started talking to friends and family about how I really liked uh, the people that I had met there. And I really liked the vision for where it was heading and could see myself working with this team. And, you know, even though I didn't know anything about, you know, finance or how I could be helpful, they thought I could be helpful and I thought I would learn a lot. And, you know, it was a bunch of people looking at me, scratching their heads saying, why would you go to Signet Bank when you can go to Wall Street? You know, or why go to Signet Bank when you can go to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory? Like these are you know, prestigious organizations, and you're going to have a better career there. And it's just hard to explain to people that when you find the right opportunity, it has nothing to do with credentials. You know, it has to do with what you actually do on a day-to-day basis, because you wake up in the morning, you're going to put almost, you know, the, the vast, vast majority of your waking hours into work. Um, you know, if you find the right opportunity, you're on a steep part of the learning curve, and every day is a new challenge. And that has nothing to do with the logo, you know, that's attached to the company. You know, you can learn a ton from a company that's small and you can learn a ton from a company that's big. It's all based on the people that you interact with and, you know, what you're responsible for on a day-to-day basis. So I would say, you know, logos can be important in building your resume, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is you need to be learning. And putting yourself in an environment with people that you want to spend time with because that, you know, especially early on in your career, you're going to be spending a lot of your waking hours at work. Right. So is learning the metric that you think you, you were optimizing for uh, when you, as you were going through this, this process? I, I don't think I, uh, I came out you know, with that as my decision logic. Like I wasn't saying let me maximize learning. Um, it wasn't so overt. But if I'm looking backwards, 
it was really about uh, wanting to work with a certain set of people and working on a set of challenges that, you know, someone had belief that, you know, I was a, uh, someone with talent and would figure it out, even though I didn't have a background that necessarily looked like it was a perfect fit. And again, I, I, I can't say enough about, you know, finding an environment and finding people and finding a set of challenges that when you put it all together, you know, you're excited to wake up every day and go into work because that's when you're going to learn the most and that's when you're going to give it your best. Um, so you, you really have to put it all together. Right. And I really like that. I mean, what you're saying here, because the logo, you said it's great. It's great. It's good. You know, society puts a lot of importance on it. It's good for building a resume, but it's not going to be getting you up out of bed every morning and excited to go to work. Like a logo only goes, only goes so far. Yeah. And, and a brag worthy resume is something that a lot of, you know, employers actually just tuck under their, uh, their paperwork and say, I've got to figure out what this person really learned, you know, because sometimes, you know, at some of these bigger companies, if you added up all of the accomplishments that people say on their resumes, it would add up to a thousand times the market cap of these companies. Like <laughs> you've got these giant teams and everyone's, you know, kind of claiming credit for everything that's been done. So some of the bragworthy resumes are harder to figure out what a person actually learned, you know, than at some of these other organizations where they might not have had the same infrastructure. They might have had to figure things out for themselves. It's much clearer about who is responsible for what and what, you know, the person actually did. So, you know, it's fantastic if you ended up being, you know, a mover and a shaker at a name brand company like a Google or an Amazon. But, you know, there are some other companies that people have never heard of that you might have been the only person working on something and you can very distinctly talk about what you learned. And that's probably more important than working at, you know, a name brand company if you're buried in the organization. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I, I really, um, like that, uh, like that idea of, of how you're explaining this. So let's get into, let's get into the job of, uh, of Signet and like what you were doing there, what was exciting to you and the problem you were solving and then kind of, you know, how it, how it went. Yeah. So, I mean, as I mentioned, Signet Bank was the 50th largest bank in the country. Um, but one of the interesting things about the organization is that it had the 10th largest credit card business in the country. A lot of reasons for that, but it was an outsized credit card division. And at the time, Signet Bank had brought over Rich and Nigel, who eventually became the, the founders of Capital One, um, to figure out what to do with the credit card business. And um, you know, they had a plan for actually growing it using something that eventually became the information-based strategy. And there are some case studies written on this if anyone's interested. And you know, the early days was about you know, figuring out how on a, a scientific, you know, methodology, test and control, you know, putting experiments into the marketplace, figuring out how you could customize product so that you could get the right product to the right customer at the right time at the right price uh, instead of, you know, the market as it existed at the time where there was uniform product and uniform price. And, you know, it ended up that their theory was right. And you were able with all of the data that was available and all of the channels that were available, you know, to differentiate at the individual customer level and customize product and get it into their hands, you know, at the right time um, and build a giant business around. So, you know, joining Signet Bank at the time was really joining a startup within a banking organization 
um, and the startup was scaling very, very rapidly. Um, and it was scaling so rapidly that it didn't take long before there was a critical decision to make, which was, um, you know, the credit card division was consuming most of the resources of the company. And, you know, the, the bank had to make a decision about how to either starve the credit card business or starve the rest of the bank because there wasn't enough capital and resources to go around. And the answer to the case was to spin off uh, the credit card division into what became Capital One. And, you know, that way it could be independent, it could raise capital, it could attract the talent, it could continue to grow. And then the core bank, you know, had the resources at its disposal to grow the core banking services. And that's really the origin of Capital One. I mean, a successful strategy executed to grow a division very rapidly within the bank, you know, turned into spinning it off into its own organization. And from there, you know, we were able to grow it from, you know, under a, a thousand people and under a billion dollars of market cap, you know, to what now is a, you know, 30 to $40 billion organization and, you know, 20,000 plus people globally. So, you know, it was a, a really interesting, you know, early times at spinning off the company. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was a lot of work. Uh, at any given time, I probably had two or three jobs at the same time, and we were figuring out everything from scratch. Um, but, you know, those are the opportunities that when you look back on them, they are formative. Um, I would never trade it for anything else. It was just, you know, a great learning experience. Right. And it's, it's interesting, as you said, this is kind of a, a startup with, within a bank. And, uh, and then when the company split, you chose to go the, with, with the, the startup type company. Do you see yourself as, you know, someone that thrives in kind of like an ambiguous environment that startups are, are kind of, uh, geared for or is it or i mean obviously i'm i'm kind of answering the question but uh or is it like a big company guy it's like tell me what to do and i'll go execute on those tasks and i'll add data to decision making like how did, how how did you know that you were like uh more geared towards the startup well uh it, it wasn't very difficult um you know if you like moving quickly if you like getting to yes answers um, if you like ambiguous situations where, you know, you have to do your best with incomplete information and feel comfortable doing it, you know, a startup environment is much better for you than a bigger company with a lot more process in place. And when I first joined Signet Bank, you know, I didn't know anything about finance. I didn't study finance in school. I studied engineering and applied math and statistics and artificial intelligence. And, you know, it gave me a fresh set of eyes, or I was a fresh set of eyes into the organization to help think about things in a very different way. And whenever I would ask a question, and it would be a question like, you know, couldn't we use statistical models to, you know, tackle this problem in a very different way? Um, the answer that would come back is, if you think the answer is yes, go build a team and go do it. And there were just big permissions that were granted um, it's kind of funny because if the shareholders knew what I personally was responsible for at any given moment over the years, they would have, you know, said to the, uh, you know, the powers that be that they were insane to put someone with no experience in charge. You know, I was the uh, first credit officer of the company before there was even official credit officer position. You know, managing a lot of the statistical models, all the statisticians that were responsible for, you know, the risk decisions and the risk models of the company. And, you know, it was just a, an environment where the answer was solving problems. 
you know, not looking for someone with experience that, you know, knew what they were doing and had done it 10 times in the past. So I just knew that that was the right environment for me. Um, I was definitely in the mindset of move quickly, get answers in place, figure out what you've done right, figure out what you've done wrong, but you have to get to a yes answer. And I think that's the biggest difference between uh, working in a big organization and a small organization. You know, if you're in a, a, a big organization, an established organization, the reality is that the powers that be, um, they will tell you at the beginning of the year what the goals are for the entire company, and they'll cascade it down business unit by business unit. And that gets cascaded down to the individual employee level to say, here's what you're responsible for. Here's how we're going to measure your success. And, you know, at the end of the year, you're going to earn your bonus, you know, based on hitting certain goals. Like big organizations are fantastic at breaking big problems into small pieces and then building accountability, you know, around delivery of results. The interesting thing is you can earn 90%, maybe more of your bonus by doing nothing different every year, you know, just executing against what the company already knows how to do. And if you take on risk, you can try to chase that last piece of your bonus and, you know, outperform. But in reality, there's a lot of risk that comes with, you know, trying to pursue doing different things. So it's a, it's a sad but true adage that in bigger companies, you earn your bonus one year at a time. And the powers that be tell you how to earn that bonus. And you, you generally do as little as possible that's new. And you just tweak things at the margin, you know, to make sure you're you're operating the business as efficiently and as effectively as you can. The difference in a startup is that success is about stringing together yes answers over six, seven, eight years in a row. And if you get to enough yes answers and those yes answers turn into successful business decisions, you've built something really special. But you have to get to a yes answer every day because if you get to no, you might as well shut down. So you have these very different cultures where in a startup, everyone is trying to get to yes, and you're not worried about today. You're worried about building something that you know um, becomes a, a giant in the marketplace and has commanding market share many years in the future. And you've got to have a long-term view, and you have to put plans in place that build up everything uh, over time. Um, and you contrast that to the big company that is all the resources but they act very slowly because people are incented to make as little change as possible and to deliver against what the enterprise already knows how to do. So, you know, if I were, if I were talking to someone new coming out of college, you have to ask yourself, you know, which environment you would prefer to be in. And by the way, there are, there is no right or wrong answer because the beauty of being in a big organization is that there's a safety net, there's, uh, you know, a, a whole infrastructure in place that can teach you how to do a job. You know, if you want to learn how to do something, you might as well talk to people who have done it before. And spending a few years in a big organization, knowing that you might not be in the perfect environment or you might not be moving as quickly as possible, but you have infrastructure in place to actually teach you how to do your job and you can experience what things look like at scale. I mean, it's invaluable experience. And, you know, going to a startup is very different because you've got to learn everything on the job from scratch and there isn't always the same type of help. 
you know, so both environments, I think, provide something. Um, it, it's about what you want to learn and when. Right. And uh, it's really interesting, Frank. And it's kind of getting into some of the foreshadowing of things I wanted to talk about uh, a bit later and some of your writings on the disruption of the incumbent banking system and uh, and, and startups changing the way that uh, that banks are, are organized. And as, you, as you're saying, people in large companies, they kind of do the same thing every day and that's they can get 90% of their bonus and, and that, that's good and fine until new companies deliver a more delightful, simpler, easier experience uh, and kind of change the uh, structural way that, that, that finance is done. Before we get into that, though, um, let's let's get to the where you are in the journey today, leaving Capital One, that decision, and, and getting into venture. Yeah. I mean, in between Capital One and QED, I actually had a stint for a few years of building a student lending company. So I had some startup experience of my own, which was pretty interesting. And, you know, after spending a number of years uh, doing that, joined back up with Nigel Morris, who was the co-founder of Capital One, and formed QED Investors. And QED Investors is a boutique venture capital fund uh, focused uh, almost exclusively on fintech. Um, Today, we cover the U.S., the U.K., and Latin America from a geography standpoint. And we're mostly early stage investors, even though we'll do a little bit of later stage investing. We like helping to crack the code on, you know, businesses, figuring out, um, you know, whether something is or isn't going to work in the market and how to assemble the business in a way that gives it the best chance of success. So, you know, we like investing at the seed stage and the Series A stage. Um, we're about a 12-year-old uh, firm now, and we have about a dozen investment professionals. And we've uh, invested in about 100 companies over the past dozen years with about 60 or 70 of them active in the marketplace today. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, and then just briefly, the decision to leave Capital One to go do your, do your own startup, um, what drove you to that? You know, it's, it's always difficult in retrospect to put yourself in your old self and say, what exactly drove this? Um, you know, the reality is I had been at, you know, Signet Bank and then Capital One for more than a decade. I think it was 12, almost 13 years. And, you know, had learned quite a bit from the parent organization and, you know, had been studying some other verticals uh, that Capital One, you know, hadn't yet really gotten involved with. One of them was student lending. And the more that I learned about the space and the more uh, the, I was actually talking to quite a few companies and was uh, part of some teams within Capital One that were examining whether student lending was the right vertical for uh, Capital One to go into next. And when we came to the conclusion that student lending was probably third on the list, but it was something that I had learned a lot about and thought it was just a really intriguing space. Um, you know, it's one of the things that weighs on you. And you say, if this is something that's interesting enough to me, should I go off and do something about it? And, you know, there's a gravitational pull to just continue doing what you're doing. Um, you know, especially when your identity is uh, what you've been doing for the past, you know, decade plus. So I was Capital One. It was hard for me to, to think about myself as anything but, you know, a Capital One employee. 
But at the same time, you start losing sleep over some of these ideas that, you know, the parent company might not chase. And, you know, the more that I looked at the space and the more that I saw that there was an opportunity, um, you know, I had been contacted by a, a philanthropist and serial entrepreneur in the space uh, who wanted to build a business in the, the student lending space. And after a handful of conversations with her, it, it ended up being the right decision for me to leave Capital One and try my hand at, you know, building a business from the ground up. Um, you know, it was a very interesting time for a handful of years. Um, there were about 30 or 40 people that followed me from, you know, Capital One and other areas of my life to come join. It was probably uh, one of, if not the best teams that I had ever uh, assembled in life. And it was uh, a huge learning experience, you know, to actually build that from the ground up. Um, it's a longer story for another day, uh, where it did not end well, and that's fine. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world because the experience was fantastic. And it helped me see the other side of building a business, you know, 18 hour, 20 hour days, uh, seven days a week, what you could accomplish with unity of focus and, you know, an incredible team of dedicated people. And, you know, coming out of that and joining back up with Nigel to form QED Investors, it gave us a unique perspective as both being uh, operators in bigger companies, um, you know, being an entrepreneur, building a business from the ground up, and, you know, then being the capital on the other side, trying to give them, you know, great operating advice about how to build their companies. So, you know, we feel that we have a competitive advantage. Um, you know, coming from being operators. I mean, we, we joke about it, but we're really uh, investors masquerading. I'm sorry, we, we are operators masquerading as investors. <laughs> so people think of us as investors, but in reality, we just roll up our sleeves and try to help companies, um, you know, build themselves into great companies over time. Right. Yeah, that, that, uh, that makes sense. And Frank, the reason that you know you're on this podcast today is because I'm a, I'm a big fan of your writing and you and you write uh, kind of um, about the future of finance and what <clears throat> consumer banking looks like uh, today and when and possibly what it will look like and there, you have this great article called the Copernication of Banking which <clears throat> essentially talks about uh, providing a highly tailored set of products and features that excite and delight users versus banking today of just providing 500 different products and it's really not geared towards towards anyone. So uh, wrapping this podcast up, I'd love to hear about some of your ideas on where consumer finance goes in the future and, and, and what, it, uh, what it's going to look like uh, in the near future. Sure, sure. So the quick plug for anyone listening, um, my blog is at uh, fintechjunkie.com and feel free to take a look. I actually don't write that often. Um, but, you know, hopefully what I write is some, some of the uh, material that tends to spread around the fintech ecosystem. And I think part of that is because we sit in an enviable position where we talk to, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of startups collectively in the QED team every year. And when you're talking to that many companies, it's paramount to actually seeing the future. It's a matter of, can you spot it? So if we're talking to all of the incumbents in the space, because we're very well connected in banking, and you're talking to all the service you know, uh, layers and the service professionals in the space, and then you're talking to all the entrepreneurs, 
you're actually talking to everyone who's going to be around five or 10 or 20 years from now. And you're able to actually talk to them at a very deep level, asking them how they see the future unfolding. So if you're good at connecting the dots and, you know, creating a story of how the future is going to unfold, um, you've got all of the information at your fingertips and had access to tons of incredibly intelligent people and the ability to ask them questions. So a lot of what I write about is really just connecting the dots for the readership um, where uh, we kind of see things unfolding in a very particular way. And I try to organize it in a way that's digestible for a reader. So, you know, again, when I see something of interest, I try to write about it. Um, and hopefully the readers appreciate that. But, you know, from a banking standpoint, I think banking is undergoing a, a pretty large uh, shift. And, you know, it's shifting from what always has been a hyper-local business in traditional banking, where people found their banks by the sheer fact that they were in their backyards. You know, when someone moved to a new geography, they looked at the banks that were around, you know, and they would pick a bank based on proximity because the product suite was very similar from bank to bank. So uh, convenience became more important. And, you know, I think with a digitally native, um, you know, newer user base and everyone, you know, having mobile devices at their fingertips and a lot more of the banking service being able uh, to be provided without physical presence, you know, it's really changing how people consume banking products. And a lot of the real estate that the banks have, you know, they're really 50 by 50, you know, banks are really 50 by 50 boxes on street corners you know, that are advertising that they have banking services. Um, and there are a lot of other ways of actually assembling suites of products that meet consumers' needs. So, you know, in the Copernican Revolution in Banking, which is the piece that you referred to, you know, I, I really outline a methodology of thinking about, you know, how the banks are going to grow up and evolve and, you know, how they can be assembled in a very different way uh, to meet consumers' needs. But, you know, again, anybody who wants to check it out, you know, I, I write every now and again on, on the blog. Yeah. Well, Frank, it's, it's fun hearing you discuss it because <laughs> I hear your words coming out of my mouth like, pretty much every day as I'm talking to investors and partners about Pay Club, the startup that I'm building, and how uh, banking is really no longer about community now that every single person has a bank in their pocket and the old way of differentiating from a bank banking perspective is, is really now about building a set of highly tailored products and features, you know, pay clubs, building those types of, uh, types of product suites for a, for a college student. But, but there's going to be so many different types of, of banks in the future. It's really, it's really great to hear you, uh, to you talk about it. So, um, you know, this podcast has been, has been really great. I love the, uh, how purposeful you've been able to, to talk about the way that you kind of navigated your career. Um, in terms of, of, uh, of last question here, you know, I, I, there's a lot of hungry entrepreneurial people listening to this podcast. Is there anything that they can do that would provide value to you uh, in your career today? Look, I mean, we are always looking for talent. Uh, we are always looking for, you know, people with fantastic ideas. Um, you know, the advice that I can give is be open-minded, um, try to meet with the most intelligent, the most experienced, the most diverse, you know, people that you can, if you're thinking about, you know, doing something entrepreneurial, 
Um, you know, but a couple pieces of generic advice I would give back, which is not answering your question, but I think it's uh, <laughs> valuable to leave on this note. You know, thing number one, if you're going to build something, you know, have a reason for building it. There are so many businesses that we see that are just marginally better than what's out in the market today. And really the question that I ask all entrepreneurs about their product is one that, you know, anyone who's thinking about going into the space should ask, which is if a rational consumer were faced with perfect information, would they pick your product? And it's just a good foundation for building a business. You know, if you have the best product in the market and you can make it work economically, then you have a reason for existence. And if it's much, much better than what's out there, then you have a fighting chance. Um, the other thing I'll say is don't be scared of actually working at a more established or bigger company for some period of time. Um, you can learn a lot in that process and all of that knowledge you can take and leverage it throughout your career. So, so many, you know, young people entering the workforce that I talk with, they immediately jump to wanting to join a startup because they want to make a difference and they want to have control and they want their voice to be heard. But in reality, a career is a long thing and the best way to get your voice heard is to have something to say. And sometimes taking two or three or four years and working somewhere and gaining experience is a way of fine-tuning your message and your ability to contribute. Um, the key is just not getting caught uh, from the, the, the sad state of inertia. Here. When you're at a company for a while, sometimes you just stay there. So, you know, I would say don't be scared to work somewhere for a while and gain some experience because that's the best way to have a voice. Yeah, well, Frank... I love that advice. This whole podcast has been really, really forward on, on advice. And I just want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing. It's been a pleasure, pleasure speaking with you. Well, same. And if you uh, ever want to talk again, I'm available. Okay. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends, helping us grow. Thank you.